0: and welcome to a very special and unique episode of How to Launch an Industry. And we're going to tell you a little bit about this series of short interviews in this episode. I am Dr. Jehan Marku.
1: And I'm Dr. Marora. And together we conducted a series of short interviews with experts in the field of psychedelics drug development. We start with Ryan Gumper, who is leading the DARPA initiative on psychedelic drugs, followed by Professor Josh Woolley from UCSF, who's running clinical trials in the space. Next, Jespreet Greywall, and Sabrina Ramkelewan talk about their work in providing support for clinical trials, followed by Kimberly Chu, who works in the regulatory aspect of the field. Next is a prior guest on the show, Graham Pachenik, who is an expert in IP protection, and another prior guest, Tim Schlitt, comes next, speaking about investing in the space. If you enjoy any of these short interviews featured in the episode, surf on over to the website for the Psychedelic Therapeutics and Drug Development Conference, -conference psychedelics-conference.com. And um, also make sure to check out the HLI website for some of the other guests that have featured. So the conference itself is happening on May 15th and 16th here in San Francisco. And each one of our guests is speaking at this conference. So make sure to check out their talks. This episode was made possible by our media
0: partnership with the Psychedelic Therapeutics and Drug Development Conference. So please check out psychedelics-conference.com. We hope you enjoy this series of short interviews and stay tuned. We have more of this type of coverage planned for upcoming events as we continue to engage with the best and brightest minds out in the frontiers of science and business.
1: We're happy to be hosting Dr. Ryan Gumper, who is a postdoctoral researcher and uh, program manager at DARPA's Focused Pharma Program, which is uh, taking place in the Roth Lab at UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, Ryan, welcome to the show. We're excited to have you here for an interview today.
2: Thanks very much for having me.
1: Yeah, so uh, our podcast is partnered with the Psychedelic Therapeutics and Drug Development Conference taking place here in San Francisco. On May 15th and 16th. So, you're speaking at the conference. Can you tell us a little bit about what you'll be speaking about uh, during the conference? Sure.
2: Yeah. So, I'm a structural biologist by training. And a lot of my work has to do with uh, revealing the molecular um, insights uh, that a lot of psychedelic compounds have with the uh, main receptor that it hits, the 5 HT2A receptor. Um, so I'll be talking a lot about these structures uh, during that talk and some potential mechanistic insights um, that we have uh, moving forward with this and how this can lead to development of novel compounds um, and potential other therapeutics.
1: That's so interesting. And I think, um, can you tell for the listeners who aren't familiar with that DARPA program that you're, you're looking at those receptors for, just give a little background on that program? Sure,
2: yeah. So the main goal of that program is to find new chemical matter that will um, target the 5-HT2A receptor, and the idea with this is to make non-hallucinogenic psychedelic drugs. So with this, um, um, you could basically take a drug, you wouldn't have the TRIP, but it would still have a lot of the therapeutic benefits that we're finding out that um, some of these compounds have antidepressive properties, things of that sort. Um, So that's the overall goal of the project, um, is to kind of look at it from all the way from the computational studies at the very beginning with large-scale docking and then all the way through behavioral studies with that and revealing the pharmacology so essentially we have a lot of the preclinical studies already done.
1: Wow okay that's rather comprehensive. It's quite
2: comprehensive it's a it's been a great program to work on so.
1: Totally. Yeah, we're excited to uh, hear your talk and to, and to track your the progress coming out of your lab. So um, we're also curious, um, as you've been working in this field, is there a reference you find yourself giving to people again and again? Maybe it's a book, a podcast, a, a peer-reviewed article. Is, is there something you find uh, yourself coming back to?
2: Yeah, so I would say in terms of books, PCAL is the main one that I always kind of point people towards. Um, that's actually what got me really interested in the whole psychedelic research uh, space, reading that as an undergrad. Um, and as I went on to do my PhD in biochemistry, you know, I always had this really, uh, really big interest from reading that book, um, and then actually doing research in that space. Um, yeah. And then one, one classic article that I always go back to, a journal article is, comes from Brian's lab, um, is the original crystal structure, uh, with the 5-HT2B receptor, Mm. uh, for LSD um um which was the first you know gpcr with a psychedelic in the pocket so yeah um it's kind of to me it's classic paper it's what put brian's lab on the map for me anyway initially mm. um but he has you know 20 30 30 years worth of work um uh looking at these receptors itself so
1: totally yeah we've uh on our interview series for this collaboration we've heard uh uh, P call and T call before. Um, and those, those are classic. Um, yeah. And, uh, no, but I appreciate that about the, um, the receptor structure. I think that that's something that I often like to refer people to who are interested about learning in the space is just referring them to a peer reviewed article or even something a little more technical on the chemistry or on the structural biology, just to give folks a window into how drug discovery really works. So, yeah,
2: Yeah. I mean, it's an important part, right? We need to understand how these molecules interact with various receptors so we can start to understand the mechanism and hopefully maybe make better drugs and, or just better understand how they work in general and the basic biology behind it.
1: Definitely. So our next question, what type of work were you doing prior to entering the psychedelic space, uh, so to speak, or, or maybe if you've been in that space the whole time, why did you stay in it?
2: Sure, so um, actually, so my PhD was not, had to do with anything with psychedelics at all. Um, I studied negative-stranded RNA viruses Mm. uh, with one kind of model virus called uh, VSV, or vesicular stomatitis virus. Um, So I did a lot of structural biology surrounding that and some drug discovery efforts uh, to develop new antivirals. Um, And then, nearing the end of my PhD, I really picked up on uh, various coding and data analysis techniques um, so I was actually um, a data science consultant in industry for a little bit um, and uh, kind of it just it wasn't the right fit for me uh, mm. personally so I actually coming back to that I always had the really big interest from PCAL uh, reading that I was like well I know Brian Roth has this you know great um, uh, resources and does great research in that psychedelic space so I reached out to him and it turned out he needed a structural biologist to work on on stuff so it was really, really nice. And I'm glad I ended up in
1: the lab. Yeah, that's awesome. It's always nice when um, I call it a, a loop in the universe kind of completing. Yeah, naturally. So uh, that's always nice. Um, and then also, uh, I think sometimes it works out for, as you were mentioning, you were able to kind of develop that skill set and then bring it back. So um, that's great. Um, yeah. So our, our last question for the interview is, uh, if there was anything else you uh, might want to share with the audience, uh, maybe about your work or just otherwise about the field, uh, are there any other thoughts you might want to share?
2: Um, sure. Yeah. Um, I would really say that we should all really support public funding. Um, you know, a lot of basic research is done with this and I always like to, you know, thank grant agencies and in particular, um, it's really great that now the federal government is starting to fund a lot of this psychedelic research. Um, it's still, you know, a lot less than it should be, um, but I think it's a really good sign that a lot of basic science is now actually getting done, so we can actually understand these compounds more um, and thoroughly investigate um, their therapeutic efficacies. Uh, within that, to understand, you know, how they've done, because there's been a lot of anecdote throughout the whole, you know, years of all of this happening, um, and it's been stifled for a long time to even begin to ask these questions and test these questions. Um, but, you know, supporting the basic science and public funding of this is, I think, really important.
1: Absolutely. That's uh, that's kind of what we were talking about just in our little green room before we started recording, right, about the um, uh, it's so cool to have a DARPA funded initiative about yeah. um, psychedelics or depending, you know, are they neuroplastogens if they're not inducing a trip or whatever, but it's, uh, it's just so cool to have the, you know, federal funding behind it. So, yeah. um, yeah. and, and that brings up kind of an interesting follow-up question, which, um, really just pie in the sky here. But as you're saying, researching the fundamentals and the efficacy of the molecules, we're talking about P call T call. Um, there's definitely big libraries of psychedelic compounds Out there, right, and uh, even I've heard, for example, work in uh, the Olson Lab at UC Davis, which is also working on non-psychedelic psychedelics, um, has reported literally going on Reddit and looking for psychedelic duds, right? That people would say, "Oh, these didn't work," and then so they'll go test those for um, plasticity effects, but but not hallucinogenic effects. So my question is, in this kind of new era of government funded psychedelics research. How, how much of the tip of the iceberg are we seeing? I mean, is there, is there a huge body of evidence that, that is still yet to be uncovered? And like I said, it's, it's pie in the sky, but, but you're the guy kind of at the tip of the spear researching it. Right. So I'm curious, I'm curious to hear what you think.
2: Yeah. I say we're just at the beginning of this. Um, there's still a ton more research, um, to do, um, and even like basic understandings of these mechanisms and how the therapeutic effects arise from these compounds. There's still like a lot unknown there. And Mm -hmm. then as as far as, you know, developing new compounds, you know, we're now entering an age where all of the computational approaches are really starting to mature. Um, So now we can really start to implement them and uh, use them to their fullest extent, um, as well as then iterate on them using techniques like structural biology um to really guide the the further design process. Uh, but yeah, I'd say we're definitely at the very beginning, specifically because well, I would say maybe it's only been the last eight years or so, research has really started to open up, if not less. Um yeah. so so, you know, think about it a lot of the other systems that we've studied, they've been studied for, you know, with modern technologies for, you know, the past 30 or 40 years, whereas we've been kind of stuck in this rabbit hole of not being able to research these compounds at all and now there's like an explosion going on um so i think we're there's gonna be a lot of cool findings in the next five to ten years
1: that's uh that's my gut feel as well but uh you know i wanted to get your opinion on it so anyways uh thanks so much for joining uh the show ryan and we will look forward to your talk at the conference awesome thank you very much very excited to have Dr. Joshua Woolley with us, who is an associate professor and director of the Translational Psychedelic Research Program at UCSF here in San Francisco. Uh, Josh, great to have you with us. Welcome.
3: No, thank you. Glad to be here.
1: (laughs) So um, we know folks are excited for um, your talk at the conference. Could you share with us a little bit about what will you be uh, presenting on?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, um, the, the the topic that uh, me, my my collaborator Boris Heifetz, and I are going to be talking about is the challenges of doing psychedelic trials, uh, which uh, you know uh, has been something that people are talking about a lot for a while. You know, so how do we do high quality trials that um, manage the expectation effects, and uh, for example, and we have some suggestions. So it's, I don't know if we've solved it, but we've we've, we've done our best to sort of lay out the problems and, you know, at least point to directions about how you might start to address the problems.
1: Excellent. Are there, um, some certain takeaways that you hope attendees will get from your talk?
3: Yeah, I think there are several, of course. Uh, you know, one is that, um, expectancy effects, you know, sort of placebo effects, uh, can be very large, you know, that you can get very, very large positive effects of things where people really believe in them. We mm. we know this from other, you know, other fields, other areas, you know, surgery, for example, has the largest placebo effects, right? Because people are so involved and you you get the special treatment and they cut you open. It must be pretty serious. <laughs> uh, and so people get a lot better even when you do sham surgeries. Mm. So that's one thing just to keep in mind. And it it kind of keeps me up at night as a psychedelic researcher, because I think, I want, I want, I want to, I want to believe that the effects we see are not placebo effects. uh, And I don't, I don't think they all are, but uh, you you know, better scientists than me have been fooled (laughs) in other fields. So I think that's one thing to really keep in mind. On the other hand, non-psychedelic psychotherapy, talk therapy, um, talking about expectancy effects doesn't really make sense because Mm. in most psychotherapies, harnessing people's hope and belief to get better is a core part of the therapy. Mm. You know, depression, often people don't have much hope that they can feel better. And, and in psychotherapy you often work to help people have hope and be like, this is going to help you change. Like Mm. that's an important, um, therapeutic uh, aspect. So then psychedelic therapy, putting it together it's a real challenge and, and even philosophically challenging about what we're trying to do. How do you allow for the expectancy effects as part of the therapy and the treatment, but then control for them at the same time? And This is a major challenge for the field that, that I don't think anyone has solved, um, but there are a lot of different ideas.
1: Right. Yeah. That's so interesting. The, uh, I know the conference has a significant focus on the drug development and the trials, but, um, so cool that you bring that angle of what happens after the drug development. How do you interpret the trials and, and integrate the other pieces of it?
3: Or like another example I could, I could give is you know, an open label trial. This is a, like a single arm trial. You're doing a trial where you only give the treatment and everyone knows they're getting the treatment. If you think about it, Actually that is the trial design that's most similar to clinical practice. That's what we do in clinical practice. We don't we don't give people we don't double blind, you know, do do multiple arms when you see a patient. You're like, "I'm going to give you Prozac and I think it's going to help you feel better." And then the person knows they're getting Prozac and then they get it and then they come back. So so in a certain way, an open label trial, single arm trial is the most ecologically valid. But why do we not stop there? Because if we did it that way, everything we've used would work for usually. Um, and chaos, that would be chaos. <laughs> and and uh, medicine has made a lot of mistakes where things seem like a good idea, but in retrospect, we were like, oh, well, actually that mm. wasn't helping people and that cost a lot of money or hurt people. You know? Right. Uh, lobotomy, someone won Nobel prize for lobotomies. That mm. seemed like a good idea at the time. So, you know, this is a really a tricky thing that, that it's not just about psychedelic therapy, but, but is um, it's really very prominent in psychedelic therapy because it involves talk therapy and people can tell that they're tripping. So this is a really challenging thing.
1: Right. I like, um, I like your phrase ecologically valid Mm. in the context of psychedelics and well in mental health therapies in general. I've been learning a lot of, um, new terms this week related to psychedelics research. And that's one of them. So, um, so our next question is, is there a resource that you find yourself often referring uh, people to? Maybe it's a book, maybe it's a peer reviewed research article, maybe it's a podcast. Is, is there something you come back to again and again when you're trying to share knowledge with folks about your field of work?
3: That's a good question. Um, they're obviously, uh, resources that I send people to when they have specific questions. Mm. So, um, because of the work we've been doing, um, in, you know, psychedelics for bipolar, we've, we've done a used mixed method approaches to do an international survey of people with bipolar who have used psilocybin containing mushrooms, for instance. Um, uh, and so that would be a resource I've sent people who email me saying I have bipolar, what should I do? You know, or, Mm. um, Well, I get a lot of questions because I'm a psychiatrist. I get a lot of questions like, I'm on this medication and what should I do? And um, unfortunately, we don't know that much in a certain way. So I often will point them to the few uh, studies that look at the internet, you know, have used, you know, things like Reddit. Uh, uh, So those are kind of some resources, some work from Hopkins, for example. Um, Another thing that comes up is people say, they're concerned about the safety of psychedelic therapy. And they said, I've heard some stuff about, mm. you know, power issues and, and, uh, abuse, mm. uh, which is a, you know, I would say is a significant concern in the psychedelic space. Um, and I will point them to the, you know, the power trip podcast, mm. uh, to, cause I, you know, they interview some people who have been hurt by this. Right. Um, I kind of depends on what the person is, is asking about. Uh, unfortunately there aren't, there are a lot of questions that people have that we don't know the answer to, which is kind of what drives me to to do the work that I do.
1: Totally. One thing that uh, I really appreciate in your reply is that in one case, you're giving people uh, a tool to participate in the research. So uh, we've done a few of these interviews. That's not something we've heard yet. So um, that that definitely is is something valuable that, that you and your team are providing. I, I'll just speak to that a little bit is that, um, you know, we,
3: don't believe that there's this like very you know clear d- d- uh, wall between the researcher and the researched right mm-hmm. we are all patients sometimes in different ways and we're all trying to figure out which treatments work for all of us in yeah. a certain way and with psychedelics in particular given that you know psychedelic mushrooms what is it more than 10% of Americans have used a psychedelic uh, and that number is going up all the time mm. there is a lot of experience and and certain kinds of knowledge that have been accumulated um, and but often they're not in the sort of above ground literature and right. so you know we and other groups have been doing work trying to you know directly ask people like oh do you have this condition have used psychedelic mushrooms, what happened, uh, as well as, um, you know, kind of using the posts that people are putting onto the internet, uh, mm. describing these different issues to, to try and formalize it or just systematically collect that data. Because, you know, people are arguing on the internet like, oh, does this happen or does that happen? And that's information. It's not the final answer, of course, but it, it's
1: certainly a starting point. Absolutely. And that's... Um definitely rings true with what we've seen uh, here on the how to launch an industry podcast. We've dissected some of these uh, meta analyses or looked at some of these surveys. And uh, so I I know our listeners are definitely in tuned uh, with with some of what you're talking about. So um, to move to our uh, last question before we run out of time, uh, we're curious that prior to entering the psychedelics research realm. What type of work did you do, or if you've been a psychedelics the whole time, why why did you stay?
3: I was born a psychedelic researcher, and I've you know went to a psychedelic research elementary school. It was it's very unusual, but you know I feel like it gave me a good broad training. So I'm a, as I said, I'm a psychiatrist. I have a PhD in neuroscience, and uh, I've been doing uh, pharmacological research in an academic setting for over 10 years now, um, maybe 15 years, gosh. Um, and I would say that oxytocin was my gateway drug. So mm. that's what I was most of my lab started studying. We were giving intranasal oxytocin. We still do some of this work, mm. um, seeing what kind of effects it can have on social behavior and as a treatment mm. for mostly schizophrenia, but also substance use disorders and um, uh, PTSD. And it's actually through that work that I, we had started doing oxytocin-enhanced psychotherapy. Uh, now, oxytocin is interesting in that it doesn't cause a subjective effect. So people it's not fun. You know, people don't know they're on it. Uh, but it, it does seem to have subtle effects on you know, various aspects of social behavior. And so we were trying to see if oxytocin could enhance psychotherapy if given right with the psychotherapy. So it's actually kind of similar to psychedelic therapy in a certain way, though there's no psychedelic effect. Um and while we were doing that work uh, I met uh, a a philanthropist uh, named George Sarlo who this now this is all I'm not outing him he um he, there was a New York Times article about him um he is a holocaust survivor and mm. he in his you know later years uh found psychedelics and was basically regaling us about how it had helped him process the trauma from from being a, a hungarian jew escaping as a child mm. um and I, you know, at the time, this was more than 10 years ago, um, I knew about the work at Hopkins and NYU. And I was like, you know, our lab was already set up to do this. I'm, I really want to study this work, given your own experience, as well as how, um, insufficient the treatments that we have are. Now, I'm not a total nihilist. I SSRIs and stuff. I, they do, I do believe that they help some people a lot. They can be life-saving, but they don't work well enough. And so that's how I got into this. And, you know, we've done one study after the other and it's, it's been a really interesting ride and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing where it all ends
1: up. I think we all are. Yeah. yeah. uh, Definitely uh, appreciate your work in the field and uh, we'll be looking forward to your talk at the conference. So uh, thanks for taking some time with us and um, we'll see you at the event. My pleasure.
0: Hello, this is Jehan Marku. I'm here with Sabrina Ramkelawan and Jespreet Graywall. They're both accomplished clinicians and researchers bringing a lot of experience to this space, lots of experience uh, conducting phase one through four clinical trials. Um, I'm very excited to be sitting down with Sabrina and Jespreet, who are involved with the conference. And well, let's get started. So I'll start with uh, you, Sabrina. Thanks for coming on.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. So what, um, Sabrina, what brings you to this um, the Psychedelic Therapeutics Drug Development Conference?
4: Well, I think it's great to be able to go to a conference with like-minded people that are looking to conduct clinical trials with psychedelics. Um, with our company, we're really focusing on immersion therapy, psychedelics being one of them. And because we have worked with a number of companies over the years, um, helping them strategize um, in terms of you know, planning to do their c- clinical trials. And we've also seen the pitfalls of things that can go wrong with, um, with clinical trials and psychedelics and also some of the additional challenges. So it's also a great opportunity for us to do a workshop and kind of be able to share that knowledge that we've gained uh, with working with clients doing c- clinical trials.
0: Awesome. I want to ask you more about that in just a second. But just, Preet, from what I understand, you and Sabrina co-founded a company. Could you, could you tell uh, our listener a little bit about that?
5: Certainly. Um, Well, three years ago, Sabrina and I co-founded Node Group uh, and really that was out of what we felt as researchers and clinicians out of necessity to help really inform the, at the time, the cannabis industry. And when we started the company, we knew that we were not a traditional contract research organization, uh, but we really wanted to fill the gaps at all the different areas through the pharmaceutical value chain of commercializing drugs and supporting innovators. And we've recently just relaunched our company as Axial Bridge, as we've just moved into more defined service areas and expanded our services to a few different countries and continue to work uh, strongly in psychedelics and cannabis, but also touching on 17 uh, other therapeutic indications as well. So it's great to have a fantastic business partner, and we're really excited about sort of Node 2.0.
0: Awesome. You know, Sabrina, you're going to be, you know, One of the instructors on this workshop about, the, I guess, overcoming some of the challenges in psychedelics research, what do you, you know, what do you hope people walk away with from that? Or, you know, what is one resource people might find out about that might help them? I mean, I'm curious to know, like, what would you, if people are like, well, what am I going to get out of this, this workshop?
4: Yeah. In terms of resources, I mean, when you do clinical trials, it's a lot of regulations. You know, there's GMP, there's GCP, ICH guidelines and it's hard to you know, it's it's not only that, you know, they need to read that. It's like trying to understand how to pull that together and really succeed in your psychedelic clinical trial. And we really want to emphasize the kind of additional challenges with working with psychedelics from DEA licensing to being inspection ready because we know that you're more likely to be inspected when you're doing a psychedelic trial than a traditional pharmaceutical. So there are a lot of challenges and these are challenges for any company bringing a drug to market but even more challenges for companies that are looking to do psychedelic trials. So everything from trying to get funding is a challenge, the regulatory strategy, um, you know, the licensing that you need. And the big one is picking the right sites. You know, A lot of times we see companies want to kind of pick a friend site and we've seen the pitfalls of those. Even if we advise them, no, we've got to really do our due diligence and site feasibility. And all of a sudden the site doesn't have experience. It takes longer to get them ready. They don't even have standard operating procedures. So We really wanna, I mean, the big takeaway is we wanna basically, you know, pass along those learnings and case studies. So we don't wanna just kind of spiel a bunch of regulations. We wanna go, this is a case study and these are things that really happened. And we're really trying to help those that are looking to do psychedelic trials so they don't make the same mistakes. Um, Because, you know, it's critical. We really wanna get these products to market and mistakes can cost money, can cost time. And so, you know, we want to prepare people as best as possible to be successful in their clinical trials.
0: Excellent. You know, I really like what you said about being prepared uh, for inspections. Yeah. Um, you know, as, a you know, I've been DEA licensed lab yeah. um, technician. I've done how to do that for my thesis work mm-hmm. as well. And, and it's always great to know what to expect when you're going to be inspected. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, just Preet, in a similar sort of vein, I'd like to ask you, you know, when people ask you about your field and your work, what would you say is like the most common thing you share with them or recommend? Um, You know, I had another colleague on this uh, show earlier and they said, oh, you know, Michael Pollan's book is one of the things, uh, how to um, change your mind. It's one of the most common things I give to people who are trying to learn. Um, I've heard other people say, oh, the, you know, the NIH has this, uh, these free webinars about psychedelics research, start with those. You know, and and just in your experience, what's your like go-to for the the average person who's saying ooh psychedelics are shiny I want to get into this field what, what where should I start?
5: It's a great question. As someone who prior to uh, you know starting this company didn't have experience in psychedelics, um, but as a clinician scientist, very much understanding the fundamentals of drug discovery, development, and that process in which you get a drug to market. And I think some of the ways that I've learned more about psychedelics from both a clinical uh, chemical Uh, physiological and physical standpoint is really lessons learned from the industry, but certainly resources like Michael Pollan's book, the Netflix documentary, but then going out to other resources, I would say that there's depending on what your interest is in learning about the field. um, It could be reading about number of publications that are out in the horizon. It could be about reading sort of journalistic reviews about what's happening, but I would always say like we have so many fantastic resources as people and this community is so close. It's reaching out to other individuals that you look up to or would like to learn more. And I found that's one of the most beneficial things about the psychedelic sort of R&D industry is everybody's willing to share and wants to share um, about their experiences, about their motivations for being in the industry. And I would really just say, like, reach out to the community. Um, what you're hoping to find will be there. And it'll lead to, and this part of scientific discovery, it'll lead to new questions and new hypotheses and um, sort of new areas of curiosity.
0: I, I, I love that. You know, um, sure, you know, you could go read a book by someone you've never met and may never met. You could watch a, a polished and edited and somewhat censored documentary or you could just go ask the people yeah. doing the research and working in the space. Um and and they're not like they're not like demi gods that are walking the earth. We can approach them as mere mortals and talk yep. to them. Uh, <laughs> I, I love that. that <laughs> I think that's that's great. And you know, you mentioned motivation, so I'm gonna uh, send it back to Sabrina and say, you know, just pre mentioned this. You know, people's motivations for getting in the space. Now, obviously, you both have this rich clinical background. You could have you could have gone into like any clinical work. You could have you know been a marine biologist and explored medicines <laughs> there you could have you know gone a much more traditional pharma you could be an advisor to a pharma company on a much more you know narrow path but here you are like Darwin out on the beagle collecting finches <laughs> in this like you don't really don't know where this might end up so Sabrina like what what attracted you to this field
4: yeah well i mean we used to work for pharma so that's, yeah. uh, I mean, that is <laughs> that is our background. So we did come from that. So I started as a nurse, got into academic research, and then doing a lot of pharmaceutical trials because I did want to be part of the process of bringing new drugs to market. Um, but um, I think where things shifted for me and I think both of us um, is that with the cannabis industry, I didn't even expect to be involved in it, but I, w- I became heavily involved during early legalization, doing clinical trials and really seeing the impact of like the non-traditional medicines. So for, for us, um, you know, we really wanted to, we know that it's more even more challenging to bring these types of products to market and access, as you know, is a big issue and people getting reimbursed for these um, medications. Um, so for us, we decided that we would just go full force <laughs> and help people. We've had, you know, this, all this knowledge and experience bringing drugs to market. So we've had experience of all the way from the beginning drug discovery. And we've all both taken a number of products to market uh, devices, drugs, as well as implants. So we really wanted to put that energy and bring a team together of people that could help with emerging therapies, including psychedelics, cannabis, um, medications, etc. So that was kind of our motivation. So we could be working in traditional, but we really chose to work in this area.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And and Jaspreet, how about you? Do you, was it, um, what was bright and shiny about moving into this space? What attracted you? <laughs>
5: um, I think that the story actually about psychedelics, you know, the historical nature of the tremendous amount of research that was conducted in the past. And I think the clinical potential is really what intrigues me the most. Uh, we have stories of friends and families who are impacted by um disease states that could be could be beneficial or benefited from the use of psychedelic therapies. And knowing that there's a process, but also knowing that you have an opportunity to be part of that process. And to, to Sabrina's point, showing best practices of, we don't necessarily need to reinvent the pharmaceutical wheel of taking a drug or like a molecule to market, but what we can do is inform and support innovators in a more efficient manner, with a team of experts that can do everything from preclinical animal and talks to the reimbursement and market access strategy very early on. But then also informing other stakeholders in the process, which includes the funders, the regulatory agencies, uh, patient support groups, and being able to disseminate and share knowledge. And one of the grounding sort of thesis of, of our company is still focused on the evidence-based approach to change policy and knowledge translation. So ultimately, how quickly can we get the knowledge, the clinical trial knowledge that we've uncovered from bench to bedside as quick as possible? Because we can only say that, you know, things like decentralized trials or kind of skipping stages is helpful. It's still taking that knowledge into a clinical setting. So our clinicians and our caregivers and our healthcare practitioners can actually be able to, you know, apply that knowledge therapeutically uh, in the field, but then also to support um, other ventures or other projects in this space. And really, I think that's our historical experience in different areas of medicine, taking variety of drugs and therapies and devices to market, but then working with patients. Like we all come from a patient touching uh, background and so ultimately understanding what caregivers, end users, patients, and the process is, our goal here is to kind of meld that together and be as supportive as possible through that entire value chain.
0: Excellent. One last question for, for both of you, and either one of you or both can answer it. but you know what would help your efforts the most right now? Would it be, uh, you know, are you, do you need patients coming to you saying, I, I, you know, put me in your database, I want to be in a study. Do you need more clinicians? do you need some more basic public health data to inform policies to make um, clinical trials run more smoothly and, and you know device or product approval a little bit more straightforward you know i guess if you could wave your magic psychedelic wand and be like we want more patients in the control group we need more clinical sites we need more you know public health data so that we can change some policies to you know actually help achieve certain goals
4: I'll, I'll I'll start maybe with a question I'll, and then I'll have just free that um, we don't usually have problems with patients wanting to be part of the study that's usually not <laughs> a problem usually we get I get message all the time do you know a study that you know I can that I have this indication can you help me find a study so I would say um, not necessarily help us but help our clients I said one big one is funding right Um, and um, I think that's why we've expanded our services because we're also even working with um, investors and and those people that could fund to try to help to connect them with um, companies that have a good strategy um, go-to-market strategy so we're excited about that piece of it in terms of the evolution of our company so funding I would say is a big one so that companies are able to do clinical trials because as you know These are costly to do. Um, Very. That's really critical. And the other thing, it's not necessary, there's not enough patients to do these studies. It's that the sites have to be knowledgeable, have to be trained, and have to know how to execute on these trials. Because we have a lot of um, sites that are like, okay, we are the site to do psychedelic trials, but they have no experience, never done a clinical trial before, and they think it's easy, and you know it's not easy (laughs) to do a clinical trial. So I would say um, picking the right sites, picking the right vendors... Um, And then really
5: funding, I think those are are the key things. Jaspreet, any other
4: uh, things to add? I think
5: just to round it out to sort of the the event and the panel as well, that's really the purpose behind the workshop and us doing it with Push Blackwall is um, we have experience with actually uh, working directly to impact policy and regulations in Canada around um, uh, Health Canada audits and inspections, and to support our American sites and clients, it's very much that way too. So, from both a legal standpoint for site readiness, um, FDA preparedness, DEA preparedness, what is it that we can do to help these sites? So, for that magic wand, it would certainly be uh, site preparedness, understanding the risks, the legalities. And I think at the end of the day, for sponsors as well, for the companies that are developing these compounds, understanding that. Again, we don't need to reinvent the clinical trial wheel, but it does require you to take your time, do the right diligence when picking your vendors, picking your PIs and your sites. And so I would just say it's a bit more pragmatism in the industry is what I would like to see, because I will also inform regulatory agencies, ethics bodies, about the approval of these studies moving forward. They need to see examples of best practices before it's a bit easier to approve the studies going forward. Um, So that's really what I would probably say. Um, And, you know, definitely in addition to the operational side, which is funding, but I think it's almost cyclical. Once there's proven cases of successful studies um, and sites and operations, it will sort of fund and translate to that whole process. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Brilliant. Um, I think those are absolutely um, essential messages. I mean, I I took an introduction to psilocybin therapy training, and I would say that everything you're mentioning... Would have greatly improved um, that class, not just the promise of it, but how do you actually do it and carry it out for yeah. for the benefit of everyone, uh, investors, the patients, the community? Thank you so much for your time today. I have about fifteen things I'm going to research after this <laughs> call. Um, uh, so everyone, uh, be sure to follow the links uh, to the Psychedelics Therapeutics Drug Development Conference. Sign up for the workshop. Sabrina will be there, as well as some of the other people we've interviewed in this series. Thank you so much, Sabrina and Jess Breed. It's been a pleasure.
4: Thank you so much Thank for having you. us. Bye. Bye.
0: I'm sitting down right now with Kimberly Chu, senior counsel at the law firm Hush Blackwell. She is a former life sciences researcher utilizing her ability to understand and explain complex topics to advise clients as to regulatory and legal liability issues. Uh, Prior to law school, I found it fascinating that you've worked on the Human Genome Project and made this transition to drug development before before coming to Hush Blackwell and and becoming their co-founder and co-leader of the Psychedelic and Emerging Therapies Practice Group. Um, you know, you have a unique and exciting background in biotech startups. And as a research scientist, this gives you such unique perspectives in emerging areas of law, such as psychedelic therapeutics. Thanks. Thanks for joining us today.
6: Oh, thank you so much for having me on.
0: Yeah, it's, it's my pleasure. It's great to sit down with with you, um, and you're speaking at this upcoming Psychedelic Therapeutics Drug Development Conference in San Francisco. And, you know, again, you have this background that is in science and is in law. I've got to ask, what are you going to be talking about at this conference?
6: <laughs> well, I'm, I'm part of an um, esteemed panel. Um, I'm very honored to be asked to be on the panel to discuss psychedelics and clinical trials. Uh, Specifically on site feasibility and audit preparedness. Um, So I'm speaking on the panel along with um, our, so along with our two other co-leaders of the psychedelic and emerging therapies practice. So Karen Luong and Natasha Sumner. And we are uh, very pleased to speak along with um, Jazpreet Groel. I'm mispronouncing it. I'm sure Jasper would kill me later. <laughs> and, uh, Sabrina, and Sabrina Uh, uh they're both are um, the executive team of Node uh, Group and a leading CRO in the psychedelics uh, arena for um, clinical trials. So we're very happy to yeah run a workshop for for uh, and it's a workshop in advance of the actual conference, and then we're doing a small a smaller talk during the conference itself.
0: Oh, amazing! And what do you hope uh, attendees get out of that workshop?
6: Well, we're hoping to imbue the idea that um, there's a lot of excitement in psychedelics, uh, in the industry in general, and so that we we do run into folks that come in and say, "Oh, I have investor money. I think we should start a biotech." I'm like, "Oh, do you have a do you have a biotech background?" They don't. They don't have a biotech background, but they want to <laughs> hire folks, right? And this is all great. All this is great, and so we were hoping to. Um, just advise folks about some of the difficulties. Uh, you know, I hate to call them obstacles, but they're really obstacles. They're, they're obstacles and regulations and compliance issues involved with research, uh, human research, as well as preclinical research. A lot of the um, folks that are, you know, approaching us uh, with these kind of ideas are not necessarily clear on all the different uh, regula- regulations that are needed. If they want to start using, um, you know, Schedule One controlled substances, like, depending on what they want to do, right? So we want to uh, just kind of give general advice as to the licensing requirements. If you, wanted, if you want to start researching um, Schedule I um, controlled substances such as psilocybin or MDMA or something like that. If you want to start, these are the kind of things that you need to keep in mind how difficult it might be to get a license, what you will, ha- what you will need to prepare in advance of getting the license, um, and all that, all, that sorts of, all that sort of thing. Um, wow, it's kind that kind of like sounds, the nuts and bolts. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, that sounds great. I wish I'd had a resource like that. Um, as a student, you know, working in a Schedule One drug lab for cannabinoids, you know, it was this like this golden arc we had framed in the office was the Schedule One license. It was like, and it was really <laughs> a challenge to get and maintain it and, and to yeah. expand it because you get it sometimes approved for something narrow. And you're like, gosh, I wish we had thought of X or Y before we applied for it so that we could do other things or additional things or things that would just make sense to do as follow-up studies. So, you know, I imagine you get asked a lot of the same questions, or you get the same enthusiastic people or, or types of people who want to do this research, who want to get in this space, and they're not clear because the regulations can be a little unclear as well and can be daunting. So what would you say is something, whether it's like a magazine article, a book, or a resource... What would you say is like the most common thing you find yourself sharing with people who are interested in this space? Do you you're like, hey, there's this book on the FDA, go read that, or uh, <laughs> there's there's this webinar, or there's yes. this movie you should see, and it'll it'll really give you some some concepts.
6: Well, I guess most of the folks I run into don't even know what psychedelic um, psychedelic assisted therapy is, and so I think. For beginner-beginner folks, I refer them always to Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, which I'm sure is a widely recommended uh, reading just to introduce the idea of plant medicines. Um, but in terms of regulatory work, that's really yeah. – there is no really good <laughs> how-to uh, about that. We've written some uh, several articles um, on the topic and um, are very committed to it, but, uh, you know, to educating folks and trying – to. Uh, Alerting folks in the industry what they're kind of facing, because um, uh, not on top of this, we're we're seeing other in, you know innovations going on in the healthcare industry, such as digital therapeutics, which is also entering into the psychedelic space. And so it's kind of an evolving area. It's really kind of I, the the podcasts I like to point to are more science oriented. Um, the Huberman podcast did one uh, a couple mm-hmm. years ago uh, with Matt, uh, Professor Matthew Johnson from uh, Johns Hopkins, which was excellent. Uh, that was over two-hour uh, type podcast. Excellent. And the Tim Ferriss show, um, he goes really in-depth into a lot of his interviews. Um, I love the one he did with uh, John Crystal, uh, which is more on the ketamine um, side of things. Yeah. But, um, but, yeah, I, I, I do love those two podcasts um, just to, because of the scientific uh, insight. I've not really run into one yet that kind of you know talks about both the regulatory issues and uh i i don't think there'd be much listenership it 'd be very limited yeah <laughs> uh, boring
0: <rules> <laughs> <laughs> well we we try to do that um on our, on our podcast as well, and we found that you know regulations uh regulatory talk isn't for everyone um but but I thought you know the the Michael Pollan book is a great recommendation you know I have a copy of it um and I love having the audio copy because I can listen yeah. to some of his discussions about the neuroscience, those concepts. When I need like a, even though I've been studying pharmacology for for mm-hmm. over a decade, like in the in the academic weeds, having someone that can put it eloquently and succinctly for you to like remember some of the interplane dynamics. So yeah, that that's that's a great resource. Um, and Matthew Johnson, terrific researcher, I've seen him present a few yeah. times. And so yeah, I think that's cool. And the Huberman podcast is is great. Um, so it's, you know, he has someone on all drugs that are fasting, like caffeine and stuff like that. So those yeah. are, I think those yeah. are good. I'm gonna probably add some to my, uh, my playlist here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> look up some of those. That's great. You, you know, I can tell that you seem to really enjoy learning about this stuff and being in the space. And, you know, what, like, made you go into psychedelics to take not only that career change from working on amazing things like the Human Genome Project to, um, you know, working at a law firm and not just working in the law, but leading um, the psychedelic efforts for clients,
6: I mean, in terms of my personal journey, um, it's, not, it's, not inter- it's not terribly exciting. Um, I did switch from science into law, and I was a litigator. and still am a litigator since uh, 2007. So, um, and that's been going on in the background, right, just full on. That's, my, that's been my career is to litigate. And it wasn't until Natasha Sumner, who's been uh, uh, the co-leader, one of our co-leaders, uh, introduced me to this idea that, hey, you know, she's been following this industry for years. Um, you should check this out. It's considered breakthrough therapy. You know, check out Maps's website and um, and because this, all, the three of us, me, Karen, and Natasha, the uh, in hush black, our, the three co-leaders of our group, um, all have a very personal connection with um, family members who've suffered from PTSD. Um, to hear that MDMA is so close to FDA approval um, and they're so they being getting such great um, you know clinical trial results and about to, you know, publish um, their, their second phase three clinical trial results. And so we're all anticipating, uh, you know, that. And, and my our, in- our understanding is that's going to be great results. We I, I jumped in wholeheartedly when she asked, would you be interested in co-leading a group with me since you have a biotech background? I'm like, yes. <laughs> I mean, the, I, I, I hate to use the term, you know, cure PTSD, but right now we're looking at, you know, three sessions at MDMA and um, with, just huge effect sizes in the clinical trials and maybe true is too strong a word, but we're talking long lasting effects. Well, you know, a year or two after the last session of MDMA and we're seeing long lasting mm. effects with this treatment. And I just feel So personally connected and just honored to be able to use my scientific scientific background to try to push this industry forward um, in any way I can, Um, just thinking that maybe it could have helped someone like my family and and our family members that, you know, that suffered from PTSD and just, you know, even if I didn't suffer from it directly, you see that happen to your parents and it it affects everyone and affects all of society. So other than that, it, it wasn't, um, yeah, it wasn't a big aha moment. Really, it'd be Natasha that would have, <laughs> so we have that. since she's been following it for years. But yeah, I was just very happy to be like her teammate to uh, jump on board. That's my amazing.
0: Yeah. And and similarly, you know, I can definitely relate with that because I took a CME on the introductory to psilocybin-assisted therapy. Now, I'm a PhD, not an MD, but mm-hmm. I was too, was so curious, like, is there a way for for me to be involved in clinical research or, or design basic research that could help inform this, and um, so I think your story I think would resonate with a lot of other researchers out there, um, or even other legal professionals. So that's yeah. that's great. I I think that the therapeutic potential of these drugs is immense, and also just what we can learn about ourselves and how human beings work. Uh, it's it's no shortage of fun stuff. Um, well, gosh, I could sit here and talk about the law and psychedelics uh, all day, but we're mm-hmm. running short on time. We should think about having you uh, back for, uh, you know, a one of our full podcast episodes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> I love that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'll just give you a chance. If there's any um, closing thoughts or anything else you would like to share with the audience, um, you know, do you have any other upcoming speaking events? Is there? Um, parting words of wisdom.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm hoping that folks can um, join us for our workshop at the Psychedelic Therapies and Drug Development Conference in May in San Francisco. Um, So for my group, that is the Hush-Blackwell group, we are also um, sponsors, uh, one of the exhibit sponsors of the Psychedelic Science uh, Conference, the big one in Denver in June. Um, I'm hoping to run into folks who, and we love talking psychedelics, so hoping to run into you at our booth uh, there in June.
0: Well, wonderful. Thank you for your time today, Kimberly. This, this has been great. Um, listener, please follow the links in the show notes to the Psychedelic Therapeutics Drug Development Conference. And be sure to stop by uh, the Hush Blackwell booth and say hi to Kimberly for us.
6: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs>
0: Hello, this is Jehan Marku. If you're looking for life sciences consulting in cannabis and psychedelics, look no further than Marku and Aurora. At our firm, we provide expert services from experimental design to technical project management and investor due diligence. If it has to do with the fundamentals and novel drug areas, we're your go-to. Reach out to us at marku-aurora.com to schedule a discovery call today. Remember that the application of scientific approaches and properly gathered data can give you an edge towards reaching your goal.
1: Hello, I'm Dr. Nica Marora here with the How to Launch an Industry podcast. So I'm very pleased to be here with Graham Pachenik. Uh, Graham is a patent attorney and the founder of Calix Law. Graham, uh, happy to have you on the show.
7: Happy to be on the show and happy to
1: speak to you again, Nickum. Yeah, of course, it's always a pleasure. So, um, Graham, everyone is dying to know uh, what is it that you're going to be speaking about at the psychedelic therapeutics drug development conference.
7: Well, I'm actually very privileged to be able to be speaking once myself on Tuesday, and also helping to host a workshop on Sunday, which is the day before the main conference starts. Um, The workshop I'm hosting, I'm joined with Greg Duet, a organic uh, chemistry PhD uh, and patent agent who works with me at Kellogg's Law. I'm um, also Shaheen Shams, who's at Porta Sophia, uh, data curator there, the, the nonprofit uh, Psychedelic Prayer Art Library. I'm also Matt Zorn, a friend and colleague who uh, most recently we worked together on the case challenging the DEA trying to schedule five psychedelic tryptamines. He's a partner in Houston at Yetter Coleman, and Matthias Sarebrinsky, who's co-founder and general partner at Simon Ventures and also has a podcast. And we're all together going to be presenting about IP um, and coming at it from different perspectives. Um, So I think the name of our workshop is Different Views Through the Looking Glass, or at least that will be the name once I send it to John to put up on the website. Um, And so we're going to be talking about from each of our different perspectives. So the perspective of a a patent agent who's preparing applications that they hope to be strong and survive examination, and if challenged, survive litigation, be able to provide strong exclusivity to uh, do what a patent is supposed to do in the drug development space, keep generics from being able to copy an innovator's drug until the patent expires. Um, And as we know, there's controversies in the space around patenting certain things, and around occasionally are able to get, maybe far too occasionally than we would hope to see, are able to get granted on things that may reach into the public domain, to things that are already known. And um, because of that, uh, may make it hard for people even to, to practice what they should be allowed to and aren't actually part of the invention. And so we'll see some solutions perhaps discussed about what to do in those circumstances from uh, from Porta Sophia's uh, Shaheen Shams and Mad Zorn I think is going to be coming from the perspective of somebody who's a patent litigator and spent a long time as a judicial clerk at the busiest patent docket in, in Texas uh, working on many patent cases and, um, and also is a, a you know good regulatory lawyer and sort of helping to think about patents from the perspective of somebody who's interfacing with the regulatory system. Um, And his uh, newsletter on Substack on Drugs um, has gone quite a few times into thinking about patents and how they interface with what's called the Orange Book, where patents are listed and the regulatory requirements for them. And then Matthias, because he's a general partner at a psychedelics focused or mental health focused, where psychedelics at least is a big part venture fund will be taking the perspective of, you know, what is an investor? Do we want to be considering when we're diligencing companies uh, from an IP perspective? What looks good? What questions do we need to ask? Uh, what things are you know important to see? Um, and so we'll, we'll all be uh, hopefully uh, with a, a big, um, you know, crowd of participants um, finding ways to, you know, discuss these and, um, Depending on who's in the audience, um, hopefully some of your listeners will be motivated to go. Uh, we can, uh, you know, address the questions people have when they're thinking about these themselves, coming from different perspectives. You know, maybe they're a company founder or an academic researcher or um, somebody who's considering the patents of competitors, or they've filed their own patents, or they're raising money at a, uh, from a venture fund, perhaps SciMAT or another fund like it. Um, So hopefully we'll find ways to really look at the patent process and patents themselves and just generally the the patent system from as many different viewpoints as as possible from people practicing in in different areas of the psychedelic space who are, you know, looking upon these professionally from different perspectives. Um, So that's, I guess, a very long summary of what hopefully will be happening during this Sunday workshop. I know it's Mother's Day. I'm probably going to have a, a short brunch with, with my mother to make this, so hopefully other people can find ways to tear themselves away from uh, their most important family member. But if people miss it, I'll also be speaking on Tuesday, and I'll be summing up a little bit um, You know what lessons we may have learned and things we may have discussed on Sunday, and then just generally going through the ways that one can achieve you know, strong, defensible, and enforceable IP and avoid some of the pitfalls around the controversies on patenting psychedelics. Um, and then how to take advantage of things like the regulatory exclusivities, how to make sure that a patent strategy fits in with a regulatory strategy, and what sort of current case law might affect some of this. There's been a very big case on REMS patents that came out Uh called Jazz v. Avidel, which uh, Matt Zorn wrote about on his On Drugs um, newsletter not all that long ago. And there's one case that's going to be a blockbuster decision, very unlikely it will be decided in time. Um, but we can talk about just the uh, sort of background of it and what it might mean. This Amgen-Sanofi case, that's before the Supreme Court now, that might make it harder to get broad claims on things like a whole genus of chemicals without Demonstrating how to make and maybe even have data on more, or uh, you know, depending on what the Supreme Court finds, much more it might make it much harder to get anything but very narrow claims. These sometimes called Marcouche claims on chemistry uh, genera on you know, broad um, classes of compounds. So those will be the things we'll discuss. Basically, uh, as a long answer, I could have just said psychedelics and patents and left it at that, but. Uh,
6: Hopefully, yeah, hopefully it's
7: no, not so good. much people uh, won't come on Sunday because they feel they've heard it all, but, but that's what we'll be discussing.
1: I think you've uh, simply given them the uh, the meaty details needed to make sure to be in the audience. So, um, yeah, that all sounds good. And uh, our next question for you, Graham, is, is there a resource that you find yourself – providing to people when people say, Graham, uh, I need to learn about psychedelics IP. I need to learn about what you do. Is there a, a book, a podcast, um, something that you reference people to often?
7: Well, I mean, sometimes, and this is largely just a way of being self-referential. I point people to, to Psychedelic Alpha, where I'm you uh, know honored to serve as editor at large and maintain a patent tracker. I mean, sometimes people want to know where the know, the most uh, sort of relevant psychedelics patents are, and I point people there. Um, And the Berkeley Center for Science of Psychedelics also mirrors it and has a lot of other very useful resources. I mean, Psychedelic Alpha in general has great resources. Um, Oftentimes, if people are trying to learn about psychedelic chemistry, my favorite things to recommend, certainly I think these are sources that most people in your audience have heard, if they haven't heard of them, uh, I don't know. They should probably order them on Amazon and read them immediately. Um, but it's the two books by Alexander Shulgin, P. Cal and T. Cal. Um, they're actually the things that got me interested in psychedelic chemistry back as an undergrad and probably were the reasons I even am sort of in the area today because I kind of piqued enough curiosity that I've followed it this whole way. And now I have them as a, a desk reference. I have the, I don't know if this is the 25th anniversary Um Bound. It's actually kind of a little annoying to get it out of the Bound copy, but commemorative edition. The other thing, I don't know if it's considered a resource, but when people ask me for advice, I often tell them the thing that uh, I take to heart the most, which is taking a a short walk, um, at least once a day, sometimes twice a day, um, and finding where your closest labyrinth is. I find labyrinths are are very... uh, relaxing, sort of rejuvenating uh, to walk around. So, you know, the type where uh, you kind of not like a hedge maze or a corn maze where, uh, you know, like a maze, you you might get lost in it, but the kind where you just sort of go around or you go back and forth, but there's only one path through. Um, And uh, doing a little walking meditation in a a labyrinth, is a a really good way of de-stressing. I'm fortunate to have one at the top of the, the hill on the street I live on so I can visit it every afternoon and I do. Um, so yeah, Re- repeat Cal and T-Cal to learn about chemistry and then also the lives of Anne and Sasha Shulgin um, and all the reasons they found psychedelics to be very interesting. Uh, take a walk
1: and look at some patents. Those are my suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, um, I'm actually reading uh, the more recent uh, publication about Shulgin, the nature of drugs. It's uh, a summation of his. Yeah, another good one. There we go. So that's that's my current read, and um, I also agree with the labyrinth thing. Uh, definitely excited to have folks come join us here in San Francisco. Many a labyrinth in this city. So yeah,
7: there's also a good one, the Handbook of Medical Hallucinogens. I could just give you all my, show you all my <laughs> book tables. I think this might be the last time you'll see a book published. They use as hallucinogens instead of psychedelics. I think they actually were a resistant, but they were made to do so. Um, and so it has maybe some historical value for that. But we'll see what edition two says.
1: Well, for, uh, for our final question, Graham, before we run out of time, um, the people want to know what were you working on prior to getting into the psychedelic space, or may, maybe you've been here the whole time and you want to comment on that?
7: Um, no. Well, I mean, I've been interested in psychedelics the whole time. S- since, as I mentioned, I'm finding uh, electronic copies of parts of p and TCAL and Aeroid back in, it's probably one of the first websites I even visited in like 97, nine ninety eight, maybe, um, after I had my first psychedelic experiences and learned about things like psychedelics and Um. And so I've been intrigued and curious and uh, you know, reading about and learning about this space since then, um, but I've only really worked in it since 2020 maybe. Um, but prior to that, I spent about a decade as a patent lawyer at large law firms. So I worked for primarily branded pharma um, doing mostly patent litigation. So mostly representing branded pharma and patent cases around uh, Hatch-Waxman Act, often called paragraph four cases because it was when a generic tried to launch and it would make a certification that it wasn't infringing or that the patents were invalid of the innovator, the branded drug. And then there'd be a lawsuit to to, sort that dispute out. So spent many years doing pharmaceutical patents and then uh, started a firm back when I started in 2016, it was really to work with cannabis companies because there were a number of cannabis companies who were thinking of being like a pharmaceutical startup, um, bringing cannabis cannabinoid based medicine through FDA and we're having hard times finding patent lawyers because big firms were still a little hesitant at that point to work with anything that had to do with cannabis. So there was a, an opportunity in the, in the space. Um, and so started a firm to work with cannabis companies which became um, once the psychedelic space sort of uh, you know became actually a thing where companies were doing similar work bringing drugs through FDA process um, just followed my interest in psychedelics and kept my pcal and Tcal uh, on the shelf but moved it over to my my desk so it actually could be something I could flip through for for work. So, um, yeah, I guess I've in one way been here the whole time and in some way just landed here a couple of years ago, but I'm very grateful to
1: be in this space combining them. Absolutely. Um, well, thanks so much, Graham. We look forward to your talk at the conference and to seeing you again on the show soon.
7: Yeah. Well, thank you. And I hope I see everybody at the workshop or at least at the conference. Um, and I'll be excited to see folks there.
1: So I'm happy to be here with Tim Schlitt, who is co-founder and partner at the Palo Santo Fund. Uh, Tim, welcome. Great to be here. Yeah, so we're excited for your talk at the conference. Uh, can you share a little bit about uh, what you will be speaking on?
8: Yeah, so I'll be um the title of my talk will be Building a Bridge to Mainstream Biotech, and the crux of this will be. Um, we'll back it up uh, real quickly, you know, if you total up the total assets under management across the psychedelic focus funds out there, it's probably 200 to 300 million in total capital, a good chunk of which has been deployed already. And when you look at the cost to develop even one drug, a successful drug, it's about 300 million in total clinical trial cost and then commercial um, development as well for that. So. All the funds in this space don't even total up enough to get one drug all the way to market. So there's going to be there's going to need to be a bridge built to other sources of capital if we want to get this universe funded. And I think the, the greatest source of that capital will come from large generalist biotech VCs. But the way they think about investing, the framework um, through which they vet opportunities is very different in many ways from how even psychedelics funds um evaluate opportunities and I think how a lot of companies are used have gotten used to operating in the space especially if if during a previous two frothy years um, that you know have have no longer kind of discontinued so I want to present on how do mainstream biotech VCs think how do they vet opportunities how can companies optimally position themselves um, to raise capital from those funds Um, and also what does the new market landscape look like right now and and what can um, founders really expect
1: Yeah, that sounds super valuable to the audience and it leads well into our next question. Uh, Is there a resource that you find yourself referring folks to um, in your realm in the psychedelic space? Uh, Maybe it's a book, maybe it's a podcast. Um, is, Is there something you find yourself sharing with folks?
8: Um, well, I guess unrelated to my talk, I always feel like Julian's primer on drug action or uh, Kanakin's primer on pharmacology are, are always two favorites. More, uh, you know, those, those have really helped me ramp up on, on understanding the pharmacology um, behind, you know, a, a, you know, any drugs. But it, it's been especially helpful for psychedelics. For beginners, you know, looking for exposure to the psychedelic space, um, Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, always a great one. Um, I think more relevant to this talk, you know, there's a variety of books on value investing. Um, Mm. Margin of Safety by Seth Klar is a big one. And I do think that where the market shifted is folks are looking for bargain deals. You know, investors are bargain hunting right now. So we've really shifted from an environment where growth investing thrived and value investors were getting punished. And now it's really kind of a time of famine, quite frankly. Um, But I think, you know, reading, uh, you know, reading, Texts by value investors out there, I think, gives a better sense of how investors are going to start thinking um, about new investment opportunities for the next few years, while we're in what looks like is going to be a recession or at least a much more difficult fundraising environment.
1: Totally, and that's actually something uh, I've enjoyed in talking with you before, Tim. You know, you've been on the podcast before that you're not just a uh, VC; uh, you also do study up on the pharmacology. So I like that you mentioned, uh, resources on both sides. Uh, that's something that, uh, we've seen a lot in the space as well. Folks who are interested in the space, even interested in investing in the space, but don't have an understanding of the technicals behind it or necessarily the pathways to commercialization, as you had mentioned. Um, yeah. So I think, uh, our listeners will benefit from, from all those resources that you've Be mentioned.
8: Fun. Yeah, yeah, one one other thing that does come to mind too. Biotech Primer um, mm. is a course, which is again good for kind of more beginners to biotech in general. But um, they put out a lot of good course materials as well. So something to cool. something to keep in mind. Definitely.
1: And so um, the people want to know, prior to entering the psychedelic space what were you working on before that or maybe you've been here the whole time and there's a good reason that you've decided to stay can you share a little bit about how you got here
8: i yeah i definitely have not been here the whole time i was a little bit of a story of kind of suit and tie to, to tie dye in a way so um started my career in investment banking and then shifted to private equity but um, throughout that you know my career arc was one of kind of going through healthcare so started largely focused during my banking career Largely in life sciences, a little bit of healthcare services, and then in private equity, largely healthcare services. But um, career arc was really kind of product development is how you could characterize life sciences. to product delivery um, is really what you know healthcare services care delivery is like. So, have spent my time in the healthcare ecosystem, of course, from a finance angle, so capital raising or M and A angle, and then an investing angle. Um, but I've had a lot of exposure, so kind of understanding the classic life sciences, um, landscape, you know, hitting milestones through clinical trials, all that fun stuff. And then from a care delivery standpoint, you know, understanding how payer networks work and reimbursement Mm. and um, all that and how these kind of roll out across a healthcare infrastructure Mm. as well.
1: And then, uh, so was there something in particular
8: that drew you to this uh, new field that you're in? Uh, an existential crisis. That's a, <laughs> maybe we'll start with that. But um, but no, you know, mental health has been near and dear to my heart. I've had a, a lot of family members who suffered from mental illness. Uh, you know, I've had a lot of family members suffer, and so it's always been uh, you know top of mind for me. And it was around 2018. There was a lot of really compelling data coming out. I mean, the Michael Pollan book, of course, came out. There right. was good studies coming out of NYU, Johns Hopkins, Imperial College London. Um and so I just looked at the data and went, This is really interesting. You know, we're now in humans, it's not just animal models, you know, they're they're relatively controlled trials and, and the data was really, really compelling where I said, This is at least worth looking at. And then I think once your eyes are open to that and you start going further and further down the rabbit hole. Um, you know, I became increasingly convinced of the medical potential of yeah. these. And then, of course, you know, did did my own taste tests, I've got to say, and uh, my mind was sufficiently blown. So uh, big, big time believer. I think these have been, you know, really instrumental in my healing journey. Mm. Um, and and there's there's really compelling data to support them as well. It's not, not just anecdotal. Totally.
1: And I think the people with the most interesting perspectives in this space are folks who have a technical background in their field of expertise as well as have a personal connection to the space so um, that's something I've appreciated about you as well that you've um, you know have that uh, technical background in finance that you've kind of brought uh, to this new space so so thanks for sharing um, uh, about your journey appreciate it and yeah, yeah and uh, is there anything else you wanted to mention in the interview
8: Um, Well, I think, you know, as it relates to this conference, just really wanted to stress, we were kind of talking about, you know, I think there's um, different conferences within the psychedelic ecosystem, I think, Mm. fill different roles, you know, there's culture, there's anthropology, there's, of course, science, Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, different pillars that that sort of get filled out. But, um, you know, this conference in particular, I think, is very heavy on the science. Um, That's what I'm certainly drawn towards. And I don't mean this, you know, too negatively towards the other conferences out there, but you and I were talking about how this is one of the few conferences where I actually learn something like I feel like there's real novel perspectives that are delivered, um, really rigorous data presented as well. And and I always get something out of what's presented. Um, And that's been for every year this has been held um always learn some really, really interesting things and um I think there's some breakthrough science presented. So at other conferences, I feel like the the panels and, and presentations are more of a sideshow and everyone's kind of networking in a back room and, and sparingly attending. But um I'd really encourage folks to to attend a lot of these panels. I think in looking at the lineup, looking at the agenda, it's gonna be really interesting. I, I'm I'm very excited for it. Um and I think am everyone's gonna learn a tremendous amount. So I'd say, you know, Keep you know keep your ears to the ground, uh, stay focused with this one, and it's definitely worth attending.
1: Yeah, I definitely identify with that. Uh, coming from science background, there is um, there's some conferences that I'll just I won't even go because I just know, like you said, I'm not uh, going to pick up something new from my perspective. But uh, that's part of the reason we wanted to do this partnership. Uh, with the conference because, um, yeah, we think it brings a lot of value to the ecosystem and we're uh, also excited for the panels. So anyways, um, Tim, thank you uh, for taking some time with us at How to Launch an Industry and we will look forward to your talks at the conference.
8: Yeah, thank you. Looking forward to it.
0: Hello, Dr. Marcoux here. Well, 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 it was definitely fun for me to listen to those again. Thank you, listener, for your time with this podcast. We'd also like to thank the PTDD conference for their support and partnership to bring you this unique content. Please drop a line by email or social media if there are other conferences you think we should cover. Just check the notes about this podcast for details on how to get in touch with us. We hope to hear from you soon. Oh,